Hi, I'm Lily from Honolulu, Hawaii, a PGY2 ambulatory care pharmacy resident from Virginia Mason Medical Center in Seattle, Washington. You're listening to Pharmacy Forward, a podcast about transforming knowledge into action. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Carrie Franson, Associate Dean for Professional Education at the University of Colorado Skagg School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences, about the pharmacology of marijuana, its known medical benefits, and potential risks. Welcome to Pharmacy Forward. I'm Stuart Haynes, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Alex Mills, a PGY2 ambulatory care pharmacy practice resident, and we're both from the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy. Hello and welcome. Our topic today is marijuana with a particular focus on its potential medical uses. As many of our listeners are aware, many states have legalized the use of marijuana for medical purposes, and a few states also allow the recreational use of marijuana. While federal law continues to classify marijuana as a Schedule I controlled substance, suggesting that it has a high potential for abuse and lacks no medical benefits, there's an accumulating body of evidence regarding the medical uses of marijuana. Unfortunately, there's lots of unsubstantiated claims and misinformation about the medical uses of marijuana. So on today's podcast, we want to explore what's known, what's unclear, and what's been disproven about the use of marijuana and its derivatives for medical purposes. And our guest today is Dr. Carrie Franson, Associate Professor in the Department of Clinical Pharmacy at the University of Colorado and a board-certified psychiatric pharmacy specialist and clinical pharmacologist. Dr. Franson has been actively engaged in marijuana research for a number of years and has a deep interest in understanding its pharmacological properties. The state of Colorado was among the first states to fully legalize the use of marijuana, and the University of Colorado faculty have been at the vanguard of understanding the risks and benefits of marijuana use. So we're really delighted to have Dr. Franson with us today. Carrie, welcome. Well, thank you, and thank you for the opportunity to speak to both you and Alex. I'm excited to to talk about what we know about marijuana. So, Carrie, I I was researching for this podcast, and I was kind of fascinated by the history of marijuana and cannabis use. Um, It was legal to use marijuana in many states in the U.S. prior to the passage of the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act in 1971, which made marijuana a Schedule I controlled substance and imposed pretty harsh penalties for the sale and distribution of marijuana, as well as hemp. Can you give us a brief history lesson on the origins of marijuana use and how it's been used by different cultures over the years? Sure. It's actually quite interesting. It it seems that marijuana had been used by people back in ancient China, probably with records going back to 5,000 years ago. More recently, if you go back to the ancient Egyptians, which is, of course, closer to 4,000 to 2,000 years years ago, there's evidence they, they used a particular cannabis product topically to try and decrease inflammation and as an antibacterial, antifungal agent. And then coming to the U.S. maybe in the mid-1800s to 1900s, physicians actually routinely prescribed cannabis for a variety of ailments. But then 
the kind of the negative propaganda started to happen. People became fearful of its psychoactive properties. And by 1937, what they decided to do is change the taxing on dispensing marijuana. So what happened is essentially marijuana was available for just a few cents. But then suddenly, if you were to dispense marijuana to a patient, the patient would be expected to pay a tax of something along the lines of $36, which is equal to over $1,500 in today's market. So that essentially cut down on all utilization of marijuana for medical purposes after the pass of the Marijuana Tax Act. So that brought us up to the point in time that you talked about, and that is the change in the Controlled Substances Act in 1971. That's really fascinating. Many people consider marijuana and hemp to be dietary supplements like herbal products. Of course, natural products like marijuana contain pharmacologically active substances that produce physiological effects. So whether you call it a herbal product, a dietary supplement, or a drug, marijuana clearly has a range of effects. So what are the active ingredients in marijuana and their pharmacological properties? Well, it's interesting you ask that because marijuana may be derived from different plant species, either cannabis sativa or indica strains. And just so we don't confuse things, hemp is actually derived from a cannabis strain, but typically from cannabis sativa, simply because it grows very tall and very fast and can be utilized for other products such as rope and a, a textile. But we shouldn't really be focusing on a specific species or strain but the amount of either THC or CBD that can be found in the product. Now, what is THC? That stands for delta-9-tetrahydrocannabidiol, and CBD is cannabidiol. These two different cannabinoid compounds have different properties. In the past, people would say, oh, THC is the most psychoactive, and you would find that more in sativa because it was the more stimulating cannabis strain in which the user would feel high and get the giggles. In contrast, indica strains, people would call in the couch, meaning that you would feel very relaxed and not have that, that stimulating effect. THC is more associated with the psychoactive effects of cannabis, and CBD is the new compound that everybody seems to be very excited about for its purported medical uses. So what do we know about these two different compounds? THC is known to have several effects, and these are known and shown and repeated in a variety of clinical pharmacological studies. We know that it inhibits thinking, that it can decrease a user's motor activity. It can increase appetite, the well-known munchies that people can get. It can decrease people's motivation, impair short-term memory, and actually lead to an increase in body sway, which might lead to somebody having a positive roadside sobriety test saying that they're impaired. And lastly, it seems to be pretty good at decreasing pain perception. Less is known, however, about CBD. Long-term users of it report 
both somnolence as well as having sleep problems. It decreases appetite, seems to cause diarrhea, fatigue, and weakness. One thing we should differentiate is that marijuana is typically designated for products that are plants that contain more than 0.3% THC, and hemp is anything that contains less than that amount. So, Carrie, cannabinoids have been studied for a number of years, and we now have a few commercially available products that have been FDA-approved for medical use that contain ingredients found in marijuana, specifically THC, and now CBD. Can you tell us a little bit about these products and what their official FDA-approved medical indications are? Given that cannabinoids have been approved for medical use in the U.S., why is marijuana still illegal? Well, I'm going to start by answering your second question first. And uh, as far as why are cannabinoids legal as a medical or pharmaceutical product and marijuana is illegal. I can't answer that. I, I as a clinical pharmacologist, I, the the wonders of the U.S. legislation and even the way in which medical marijuana has been legalized by the states is kind of bewildering to me. So I'm not really certain why marijuana is still illegal. I would ask somebody who's more in the legal department than in the pharmacologic department that question. But getting back to your other question about the products that are available and approved by the FDA. The first product that was approved was Dronabinol, and this was approved back in 1985 for the treatment of chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. And then a few years later, it also obtained the indication for anorexia secondary to HIV-AIDS. Then Nabilone was also approved in 1985, it was actually pulled from the market and then reintroduced in 2006 with the indication for chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. What's interesting about Nabilone is that the company that is currently manufacturing Nabilone is trying to reformulate that particular product so it has better of the bioavailability into the body. What's probably not well known about any form of cannabinoid as you take it orally is that the bioavailability can range fourfold. So that means sometimes you get four times the dose in compared to other times you might take the product and you get only one-fourth the dose that you typically are used to getting in. And that really leads to problems with consistency for trying to treat a medical disorder. What's been interesting is that just last year in July, the FDA approved Epidiolex, which is a CBD extract from plant product that's been isolated and produced. The thing about this particular product is we, they guarantee that it's approximately 99% CBD and likely less than 1% THC in their pharmaceutical product. It was approved for the rare seizure disorders of Lennon-Gastaut or Dravet syndromes. Often, these syndromes are noticed in very young children, and because they're having several seizures a day, and when I mean several, I mean several hundred, that they have a difficult time reaching maturity due to the, the impairment that this disorder can cause. 
The other product that's approved, not in the U.S., but in Canada and Europe, is Sativex. Now, this has been formulated as a oral mucosal spray that contains equal parts THC and CBD. And it's been approved for the symptoms of multiple sclerosis, such as uh, spasticity and pain, but it has not been approved in the United States. Romanabant was actually the product that I was working on in the Netherlands many years ago. And this is a CB1 receptor inverse agonist. So essentially kind of has antagonist properties. Now, why was this particular product being developed? Well, the hope was that if things like THC seem to stimulate the CB1 receptor and cause the munchies or increase appetite, the idea is if we block the effects at that receptor, that that would cause weight loss. And so sure enough, the product did make it to market in Europe. However, after a few years, they did a large study looking at the long-term cardiovascular risks associated with utilizing these products. But what did they find? Patients seem to develop an increased risk of suicidality. So those are the products that are pharmacologically based either from an extract or synthetically created and approved by either the FDA or the European Medicines Agency or EMEA. So Carrie, it seems the oral dosage forms have a lot of bioavailability problems with this fourfold difference in absorption. And that's a very significant variability. And as you say, that makes it much more difficult to have a consistent amount of the drug in order to treat a medical condition. So that begs a question, would another route of delivery actually be better? Many people claim that inhaling or smoking marijuana has the most effect for them and the most consistent effect, what does the science tell us? Well, it's interesting. As we were starting to do the research in the Netherlands about this, we reviewed all the pharmacokinetics of the different types of dosage farms to try to determine how do we most reliably get this product into people. And Unfortunately, with the oral route, we saw so much variability that really testing pharmacologically what happened every time the patient or the subject would utilize the product, it was too variable and it couldn't be trusted. So we looked at other things such as oral mucosal. Well, how about if you use it buccally, put it in the cheek and hope for more immediate absorption there? Well, when you look at the studies from Sativex, the differences between orally ingested and swallowed THC as well as CBD compared to the Sativex oral mucosal spray, the time to peak and the duration of action of the product really weren't significantly different. So it seems that even with the buckle applied product that the pharmacokinetics remain the same as actually ingesting it. When it comes to smoking, people don't like to smoke because whenever you burn something, you lead to the formation of carcinogenic byproducts. And that's true whether you're smoking a cigarette or you're burning your meat on your barbecue. So smoking should be avoided to avoid noxious chemicals, 
But the safest way to do this is actually to vaporize the oil droplets that are found in the cannabis plant for the, for the cannabin, cannabinoids present. So how does this done? So you can take your leaf product and you can put it in a vaporizer where you slowly heat up the air. And as you do so, the cannabinoids become vaporized or go into the air much like smoke would happen. But the difference is you're only heating it up to a couple hundred degrees versus maybe 2000 if you're burning it. And so by doing so, you are allowing the active component of the acid of THC to become delta-9 THC, so it becomes decarboxylated, so it becomes the active form, and it's fairly reliably absorbed into the lungs. The difference in bioavailability is, is never been found really more than 10 to 25%. In addition, the thing that's a benefit of either smoking or vaping, but of course we don't want the noxious chemicals from smoking, is the fact that because the onset of action is within minutes compared to the oral route, which can take between one to three hours, is that the user has the capability of titrating their dosage based on how they feel. So if you're able to vaporize it, start to realize the effects within minutes, you're less likely to overdose. And that's certainly been our experience here in Colorado. People do not go to the ER because they've vaporized or smoked too much marijuana, but they will and have, in with increasing numbers, gone to the ER because they've ingested too much of an oral edible product. Lastly, I want to talk a little bit about topical. There's really no evidence of topical absorption of the THC or CBD. There's been no studies. So because of this, we don't know the bioavailability. We really don't know the time of action and the duration of action. So Carrie, it sounds like, you know, we always think about with our other medications, how important is the, the route of administration and these products are no exception. So now let's talk about some of the medical claims that proponents of medical marijuana have made and whether these claims have evidence to support them. What are the proposed medical uses that you believe we have the strongest evidence? And conversely, where is the data lacking or perhaps even indications where the evidence has shown marijuana isn't useful or effective? Well, thanks for the question, Alex. It's actually a great one. And, and I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of what cannabis can be used for, because if we look at only what legislation for different states have determined to be acceptable medical conditions, we would probably be misguided. And the reason I say this is when we look at the evidence for the different indications, some of them we find there really isn't any evidence that cannabis can be helpful. So when people ask me this question, the thing that I tell them to do is probably start with the National Academies of Science review from 2017. Here they looked at the health effects of cannabis and cannabinoids and all the different evidence for its utilization for different conditions. 
So what they found is that there was conclusive or substantive evidence that cannabinoids were effective as antiemetics in the treatment of chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, that it could be effective for the treatment of chronic pain in adults, and that it seemed to improve patient-reported symptoms of multiple sclerosis spasticity. So the patients themselves felt that it helped reduce their spasticity, but when you had a clinician trying to rate the patient's spasticity scores, they they really couldn't differentiate cannabis from placebo, but but the patients definitely could. There seems to be moderate evidence that cannabinoids are effective to improve short-term sleep outcomes in patients that have other disorders such as sleep apnea, fibromyalgia, Parkinson's disease, and chronic pain and multiple sclerosis. There's actually no or really insufficient evidence that cannabinoids are effective for things such as cancer-associated anorexia, cachexia, treating any kind of cancers, including glioma, treating symptoms associated with ALS or uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, treating Parkinson's disease, or maybe even levodopa-induced dyskinesias that those patients often have after long-term therapy, treating dystonias or schizophrenia or schizophreniform disorders. And, and the last thing is, is there's really no, seems to be no evidence that it can help achieve abstinence if a patient is utilizing some other type of addictive substance. And the last thing that I want to talk about, so we talked about that there's actually no evidence that it treats these disorders, but they also looked at where's there evidence that perhaps cannabinoids do harm that there's some evidence or limited evidence that they're ineffective and may cause worsening in patients who are trying to improve their symptoms of dementia, improving interocular pressure associated with glaucoma, and reducing depressive symptoms in individuals with chronic pain or MS. I think that probably surprises a lot of listeners because glaucoma, for example, out of the 30 states that have legalized medical cannabis for a variety of conditions, glaucoma is listed in 28 of them. So here we have a situation where the approved medical condition is actually unlikely to respond to chronic cannabis therapy. So Carrie, before we wrap up today, can you tell us what you believe will be the future of medical marijuana? And why is it so darn difficult to do research about the medical uses of marijuana? And and do you think we'll ever truly know the truth about the potential benefits and harms of marijuana when used for either medical or recreational purposes? Wow, the future. That's hard to say. I wish I had a crystal ball. But things are moving quickly. That's even true of what's happening from a legal standpoint. In 2018, the U.S. government approved the Farm Bill, in which it includes provisions that actually have legalized hemp, as long as you're the person growing hemp. So it's no longer on the list of controlled federal substances. So it allows it to be sold as an agricultural commodity, But what's interesting is the main product that you might get out of hemp might be CBD. Utilizing CBD for any condition is still considered a Schedule I product. 
Okay. So you can grow it. You just can't report that it has any benefit by using it. But then isn't this interesting because CBD is a schedule one, but Epidiolex, which comes from purifying CBD from the plant cannabis is become an FDA approved product. So here you have some inconsistencies. And what you're also seeing is in the communities, CBD is being sold kind of everywhere as the latest nutritional supplement. You know, I can walk into my my local dog food store and what do I see? I see dog food that features CBD in it. And when I talk to the owner of the store, I'm like, why are you selling this? Simple response is, hey, we think it's good for the pets. So back in early April, the FDA commissioner said, we cannot have a situation where we have something that's both a dietary supplement, like CBD, as well as a prescription product or a drug like Epidiolex, right? You can't be both at the same time. So there'll be a meeting held May 31st to really discuss how should the FDA regulate CBD. So I think this is really, when you say the future, this is the very short-term future, and we're curious to see what happens as a result of that particular meeting. So that's it from a legal point of view. For the most part, what I see in the cannabis industry is they have identified trying to determine consistent absorption of oral cannabinoids as the holy grail for manufacturing and growing cannabis products. So a lot of people are trying to create micro emulsions or different types of dosage forms for oral cannabinoids to more reliably get the product in. And when you asked about the research, you know, this is a really tough area. Universities could be found in violation and lose their federal funding and face penalties if we were to bring what is currently available being sold in a variety of different dispensaries onto our campuses. We are only allowed to study the federally approved cannabis that's being grown at the University of Mississippi. But what people are using is a much different product. And for me, if we are here to try to ensure cannabis user safety, we ought to be studying the actual products they're using. So in my mind, I would love to see less stringent regulations about what can be studied on our universities as far as learning the impacts on the health of users. Well, Carrie, I want to thank you. I can't thank you enough, really, for participating in today's podcast and explaining some of the key issues around marijuana use for medical purposes. We really appreciate your time and, and lending us your wisdom to this podcast. Yes, Carrie, thanks so much for being on our show today. I learned a lot. Thanks for listening to Pharmacy Forward, a podcast about transforming knowledge into action. If you like this podcast, please subscribe using your favorite podcast app and tell all of your pharmacy friends and colleagues. Be sure to rate us and send us your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a story you'd like to share about someone who's transforming knowledge into action, send us an email. 
Pharmacy Forward is produced by the Division of Pharmacy Professional Development at the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy. For more information about our professional development programs, visit PharmacyCPD.org. That's PharmacyCPD.org. This episode was conceived and developed by Chase Board, Lily Van, Ha Fan, Alex Mills, Megan Brown, Lori Fleming, Josh Fleming, and Stuart Haynes.